Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping real estate and, as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we interviewed Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson is a master in the manufactured home space. On the podcast, we discuss the ins and outs of investing in manufactured homes, efficiently structuring affordable housing deals, and the future of low-cost housing. Jefferson, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Uh, looking forward to our time today. So why real estate? Uh, I saw your background. It's not super traditional real estate. How did you get into the real estate business? Uh, well, of course, my niche is mobile home parks. Uh, and, you know, as I uh, like to say, when I woke up from the concussion, it just seemed like a good idea to buy a mobile home park. Uh, but uh, more seriously, you know, I had been working for almost 10 years in high tech out here in uh, San Francisco in Silicon Valley. And I had gone through the dot-com boom and bust and sort of saw my stock options, you know, go up and then right back down in value. Uh, there were a lot of companies, you know, going out of business. Uh, fortunately, ours got bought uh, and I kept my job. Uh, but a lot of, you know, my peers equally bright, uh, no less deserving than me, you know, they found themselves out of work uh, there in early uh, 2000 when the dot-com bubble burst. So I wanted to have some more stable side income. Initially, my goal was not to leave high tech. It was just to add on some additional stable side income. And uh I, I was attracted to apartment buildings, uh, to multifamily, uh, I guess as, uh, you know, I'm not in Warren Buffett's uh, investment league, but I try to be. Yeah, he always says, stay within your circle of competence. Uh, and I had lived in apartment buildings, so I figured that must be my circle of competence. So I started looking online, uh, like on LoopNet, and just filtering for multifamily properties, not here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I knew prices were already quite high. So I was already looking, you know, out in Lubbock, Texas and Peoria, Illinois and Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and I would, again, filter for multifamily. I would see something like 99 apartment buildings at an eight cap. This is now about 2005 pricing. Uh, and then I would see like mobile home park at 10 cap. And I just thought, that's absurd. I'm not going to buy a friggin' trailer park. No way. I would delete the search result and do it again and again. And, you know, I, I kept getting hit over the head, I don't know, five or 10 times uh, with these kind of quirky uh, multifamily properties. And finally, I said, well, I don't know, I guess mobile home parks are, are multifamily and they seem to be priced better. So why don't I look into it? Um, and then it clicked pretty quickly just doing some online research, uh, what makes mobile home parks uh, a, quite a compelling uh, investment. You have that background in Silicon Valley, and mm -hmm. that's all about you know, finding value and, and, and going out and, and doing the new thing. And manufactured housing isn't necessarily new, but there are a lot of new ways that people are going about investing in it. And yeah. so I'm curious, what's your method when you're going out and you're looking at a park? Um, how, how do you drill down and really try to add value? Because yeah. it's not like a tech company where you can just go out there and uh, create a new algorithm and, and really change the game. 
Right. This is not desk work. <laughs> this is not just, you know, computer programming and it's not spreadsheets. Uh, this is actually boots on the ground. Get out there, get bids, get the street repaved, get house number four, you know, completely redone, repainted, new kitchen cabinets, uppers and lowers, replace the roof with an all metal roof, you know, invest some real money. Um, so, you know, we basically there, there, there are two things regarding parks, uh, you know. Uh, so first off, there's the economy that the park is in. We can't fix the economy. Nobody can. So the first thing we look for is to screen out mobile home parks in weak economies. Uh, that's typically denoted by economies, by metro areas, where, for instance, the average house price is less than $100,000. So, for instance, in Detroit, uh, the actual core uh, center, old school part of Detroit, average houses are something like $60,000. That indicates great economic distress. And oh, by the way, the brand new mobile homes that we bring in uh, since COVID and supply chain disruptions, the you know the prices of mobile homes have gone up dramatically, roughly from say thirty five thousand to about fifty uh, at the factory. So long story short, by the time we transport a home and get it skirted and put a deck on it, we're we're probably having to sell that home for anywhere between sixty five thousand and seventy five thousand dollars for a brand new home. So long story short. If we're trying to compete with traditional site-built homes at 60000 bucks, we can't compete. Uh, again, if the average house price is 100000 and up, and some of our markets, it's around, the average house price is around 200000 then when we're bringing in brand new houses for sixty-five to 75000 that's a compelling value proposition. Uh, we do also rehab uh, used mobile homes that may come with the park anyway, um, and those may go for anywhere between five and $30,000. Uh, so we look to weed out uh, parks in weak economies, um, and, but honestly, very little of America has that weak of an economy. Certainly, I don't know, 70, 80% of most metros, I would think, would have greater than $100,000 house prices. Uh, so once we're looking at a park in a at least decent metro, uh, you don't have to buy a park, uh, you know, right, you know, for instance, out in Silicon Valley, there's a great park right near Apple Computer's new headquarters. <laughs> you don't have to buy that park. By the way, somebody else, Blackstone, I think it is, the big Wall Street firm already did. Um, but as long as the economy is decent, then your your time and money will be well rewarded. So then we look at, well, for instance, how many uh, paths are there that have abandoned mobile homes on them? What we see quite often is that, uh, you know, most of these parks are owned by mom and pops and they may have built the park, you know, granddad, dad or granddad may have built it after the war. Suffice it to say, you know, the mortgage got paid off somewhere back in the 1970s or 80s. So the current owners have just been cash flowing out of it quite nicely for decades. Good for them. But unfortunately, what we see is that most mom and pops, they make enough money. You know, they're they're clearing 10 grand a month with no mortgage, 20 grand a month. And, you know, if, you're, if you've got that out in 
Ames, Iowa, or Lubbock, Texas, 10 or 20 grand a month is pretty, pretty good income. It is really most anywhere, especially out there. So long story short, we find there's very little motivation uh, to reinvest in the parks, which is sad, uh, but it is what it is. So we will, for instance, look at and count how many uh, abandoned mobile homes there are there that we can renovate and how much money we're going to have to invest in them. And that's usually three to $15,000. So again, we're adding up on our CapEx budget, how many houses, what's it going to be? Then we look at things like the roads. Uh, again, we see quite often that mom and pop haven't repaved the road. The roads got paved when the park was built in 1962, and that's been it. It's now been 60 some odd years. You know, No pothole repair, no crack uh, repair. Anyway, so we go in and do you know, f- fix things like that. We'll also look at the water and the sewer systems. We also see, we're looking at a park right now where the trees have probably not been trimmed in upwards of 50 years. The tree branches just get heavy. One of the branches has actually broken off and is laying on the roof of one of the tenants' mobile homes. We don't run our parks that way. We would have trimmed the trees long ago. If a branch did fall, we would have cleared that. The trees are our responsibility as the landlord. Uh, But again, the mom and pop that own that park just aren't investing money in in tree trimming uh, or tree removal, and that you can count on, you know, being fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand dollars a tree. Um, anyway, so those are the kinds of things that that we we add up uh, when we decide, you know, whether to buy a park. Of course, we're looking at at the overall tenant uh, base, the size of the park. Uh, we're looking at at uh, w- what the average prices are, um, that kind of thing. So you mentioned uh, issues with deferred maintenance, and uh, in, in that one example, uh, the previous owner had gone and and hadn't been taking care of trees yeah. and foliage. Um, is that something you consistently see in parks? Because that's something on our podcast that we consistently see with a wide a wide array of folks in the affordable housing space. And then, does that contribute? Do you think to the drastically increasing rates uh, that we're seeing for insurance uh, in liability for affordable housing. My sense is that generally what, what's driving insurance are, is especially things in Florida, like hurricanes, anywhere really along the Gulf Coast. Um, and that's not something that that's really related to mom and pop. Um, and then probably there, there's, you know, just with the economy, and the supply chain being a lot tighter, it's just a lot more expensive to be buying, you know, shingles and two by fours to repair a mobile home or a clubhouse that might have been damaged in a storm or heaven forbid, a fire or what have you. So I think it's more some weather related issues unique to the Gulf Coast and then supply chain issues most everywhere uh, that are uh, really driving up in insurance rates. We see a lot in a variety of very profitable uh, commercial real estate asset classes, be it uh, self-storage or be it flex space or kind of flex industrial contractor garages, that there are a lot of misconceptions about those industries. And I, I think for affordable housing and for uh, manufactured home housing, that's very much the case. Can you talk a little bit about 
perceptions of the industry and how they vary very differently from what's actually occurring? Yeah, I guess there, there are a couple of things. So uh, frankly, a lot of people not familiar with the business just sort of think, oh my gosh, it's a mobile home park, you know, nothing but, you know, guns and drugs and prostitutes, you know, uh, and that's not the case. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't bad mobile home parks, but certainly not disproportionate, not, not, there wouldn't be any greater percentage of really bad mobile home parks than really bad apartment complexes. Uh, frankly, mobile home parks tend to have the exact same level of criminal activity as the site-built neighborhood that they're in. That's been proven. Um, so, you know, so these things aren't, um, they aren't that bad, as it were. Uh, if it's a park in a really bad neighborhood, it's going to be bad. But the whole neighborhood is bad. If it's a more upscale neighborhood, again, the park will be fine. The park will statistically mirror uh, the surrounding neighborhood. So that's one misconception. Uh, if, if you don't want to have a park with, with anything bad in it, just buy in, in, I mean, there's a little bit of bad everywhere, but, you know, just buy in a, in, in a better, uh, uh, community, a better neighborhood somewhere. Uh, so that's the first thing. Um, secondly, though, as people get, uh, excited, uh, about the business and consider investing, they all just say, oh, well, great. This is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just going to scale up. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll buy 10 parks this year and scale up to a hundred parks next year. The fact of the matter is that the, this space is getting far more popular. Um, there aren't that many good deals around. Uh, and furthermore, again, it's, it's probably 1% of the total multifamily universe. Basically, for every 100, uh, sorry, for every 100 apartment buildings, there's maybe one mobile home park. So it is quite, again, a quirky niche, and it is a small niche. Um, that said, you know, there are, are deals to be found, uh, if you're going to put in the time and the effort and make some phone calls and send some letters and put out a lot of offers that are going to get rejected. You only need to have one go through to get your deal. But, um, anyway, so, but it's not as easy as just saying, oh, I'm just going to deploy a large amount of capital in, in this niche now. Uh, so that's another, another misconception. Uh, another is that, oh, it's just a parking lot. Uh, and you know, there's like nothing to do. You just sit back and cash flow. This is, uh, not, I would say that the, the level of repair and maintenance and the workload is less than apartments. Uh, but make no mistake, this is not a real passive, totally passive income business. You will have homes that get abandoned and you need to, uh, you know, go, go to work, put some, some, some money into them, getting them fixed up. You will have trees that need to be trimmed. You will have sewer unstops. You will have, unfortunately, the occasional fire. And then you have what's left of a mobile home in the middle of your park. And you have a tenant, uh, generally, that they're, they're fine, but the home is not. And lo and behold, that tenant, of course, has no insurance on their home, no debris removal insurance. And now it's, you know, a $3,000 expense that month to have that home, it's not roadworthy, to have it cut up and hauled out. Um, so those kinds of things happen, fortunately, not frequently, but they do. Um, so this is not the sort of set it and forget it type business. You do need to be involved uh, and you do need to have capital reserves. Um, all of that said, I, I find it to be quite a quite a good business, even, you know, even though it's not entirely passive and I actually have to go to work to make some money. 
uh, that that's okay. That's a fair trade, but it's, it's not, it's not just sitting back collecting checks and having a martini. This is, this is a real active management business. I know you're talking about the space as an active management business, but I saw you on bigger pockets and you talked a lot about there are ways to reduce the amount of activity that is involved with yep. managing a space. And one of the yep. big things I hear consistently in the manufactured home space is about uh, you know rent to own versus owning and and uh, and and leasing lots rather than leasing uh, manufactured homes. Uh, can you yes. talk a little bit about that and kind of what your model looks like? Yes. So we want to help folks become homeowners. We view that as a real win-win. Uh, it's a win for a tenant. We, we have, for instance, a lot of people that come out of an apartment building uh, in, excuse me, in most of our markets. You know, a three-bedroom apartment would probably be twelve to fourteen hundred bucks. We can typically put them on a path to being a homeowner in 10 years, maybe 15 for a brand new house uh, for around a thousand or maybe eleven hundred bucks. Um, so we so it's a win for the tenant. They pay less money to be an owner than to remain a renter. They start saving money, you know, month one when they move in with us. Now they do have to come up with a down payment. They have to show they're they're financially stable enough. For instance, on a seventy thousand dollar house, we would look for ten percent down. It's not twenty percent as in site build houses. So we'd look for a seven thousand dollar down payment. But if a tenant's that financially responsible that they can come up with seven thousand to get into a brand new house, of course a used house might be just one, two, three thousand dollars down. Um, then. Uh, used homes would be five years down the road. They're a homeowner. New homes would be 10 to 15. Uh, but then they, they're a homeowner and then they just pay the lot rent, uh, which currently across our portfolio is something less than $400. So that is a huge win for a tenant to save a couple hundred bucks month one and five years to 15 years down the road, they're saving more like a thousand a month when again their 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 apartment that they would otherwise be in is fourteen hundred. I mean, we'll see what inf happens to inflation, but uh, inflation adjusted, the spread will, I'm convinced, re remain about the same. They'll be saving more like a thousand dollars, paying four hundred lot rent versus fourteen hundred uh, in, in in an apartment. If you're a, a family that makes our most of our families make thirty five, maybe forty thousand dollars a year. Uh, call it, you know, three to maybe maybe thirty five hundred dollars a month. If you're now saving a thousand bucks a month, that is a huge win. You know, that's like a third of your income has just been given back to you. Your expenses have been reduced greatly. So, long story short, becoming an owner is a huge win for the tenant. It's also a, a pretty big win for us because we find folks. Uh, when they come up with that kind of down payment and they show that they actually have the owner's mentality and they're no longer have a renter's mentality, then they care better for their house. So we, as the landlord, uh, don't have to maintain those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs. The tenants do that because they're buying that house. So that does greatly reduce uh, our expenses. Um, and frankly, you know, it, it 
it's a big win if the tenant, you know, if the proverbial leaky toilet leaks and you need to go get that $12 flapper at Home Depot, a tenant can go and spend 12 bucks and install it themselves. For me to call a plumber, that's probably, you know, $120 service call to have a plumber come and do that. So uh, big, big win for us, big win for the tenant. Um, so yes, we look to just help help people become homeowners and get out of the game of paying rent forever. So we've had a lot of other folks come on in affordable housing, and they talk often about uh, spaces and, and uh, facilities that work well, tend to have a sense of community. Do you think that sense of transitioning folks to ownership improves that sense of community? And does it make it easier typically to just generally manage parks? It it sure does. Uh, renters turn over on average about every two years. So people have less of a chance to get to know their neighbor if they're turning over every two years. Uh, we guesstimate that in the mobile home park business, folks tend to, to stay in their house for upwards of 10 years. Uh, so they have a much greater chance of, of really building community. Um, and we try and do things to, to help that, like, uh, you know, put in uh, barbecues, barbecue pits. Uh, we put in some uh, li like swing sets and, and kid, you know, jungle gym type things just to help the community, uh, again, come together. We, we've done uh, helped to, to uh, fund things like Fourth uh, of July barbecues and Easter egg hunts. So we try and build community in our communities um that that's again it's a win for the tenants it's a win for us it, it helps us attract new buyers into our communities if the community has uh you know the sense of being a a, a fun place and, and a place where your neighbor has got your back you know and will watch your house if you're on vacation that kind of thing um it, yeah it, it's kind of funny when, when i go into my communities obviously not everybody knows who i am I'll often get stopped by my own tenants. They're like, hi, may I help you? Because <laughs> they're like, who is this stranger walking through here? Uh, I think that happens uh, very rarely in apartments that people would ever question, like, who's the stranger on the street? But that's that's quite common in mobile home parks. You're talking about things that are common. And one of the things that uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be curious about is, is that a common model? Is the rent rent to own model, or is is the model of of people having ownership common? You think in the in the mobile home space, or is it is it something that's uh, you know as diverse as a lot of other industries? I think it is the the preferred business model. Uh, I am aware of a couple operators that prefer to continue owning the homes and rent them. Those have tended to be owners that have come from a repair and maintenance background, and they tend to be owners that live on site or somewhere nearby. And indeed, you can, on, on a per unit basis, a per home and pad basis, if you're, you know, if you're the handyman that's willing to go in and do the new kitchen cabinets, uppers and lowers, and put in the new vinyl plank flooring, and you can make more money, you're going to be pretty busy. You've bought yourself a real job by having your tenants remain as renters. Um, 
but you can make more money that way out of an individual park uh, if you keep all the units as rentals. We call that a horizontal apartment building in our business. So if you want to run your mobile home park that way and you're that repair and maintenance guy, yeah, you, you can make more money. For me, I think of it as almost like two two different businesses sandwiched on top of one another. You have the money that you make from the mobile homes, and then you have the money that you make from the lot rent down below. And rather than integrate vertically and own the homes, I would rather just go horizontal and buy a second mobile home park and have the two 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 uh, land businesses rather than a land and a home business. Um, that's my worldview. I think a lot of people in this business view it that way, but indeed not everybody. Some folks want to have the the sandwich of of owning the the, the land economics and uh, the mobile home economics. From everything we've heard today, it seems like a very competitive space to get into. And I'm sure parks cost more than a dollar. So how do <laughs> people go and look at potentially putting deals together? I know you've been an expert at kind of getting groups together to go in and invest. What has been your strategy in terms of syndicating and kind of developing uh, structures to go in and attack deals? So I'll tell you a little bit about my history. So I got uh, started buying my own mobile home park uh, back in 2007. I didn't syndicate. It was just my own net worth savings buying that first park uh, for a little less than half a million bucks. Um, I then did a bit of consulting. Uh, sorry, I then started doing it full time. I still had my day job, by the way, just to be clear. At no point did I ever say, oh my gosh, mobile home parks are so awesome. I'm going to give up all these sexy stock options and I'm just going to be buying parks. So it was a progression. So I had my day job for about the first year after I bought that first park with my own money. So I had two streams of income, 1099 and my uh, W-2. Uh, anyway, so I then started doing it full time. I then took on a couple of consulting clients uh, after maybe a year, year or two. Uh, so I had cut my teeth on my own property, knew something about the business, not not everything. I learn every day. But um, but I, I got hired by a couple of clients to consult in the business. I then bought a second mobile home park, again, just my own capital. And honestly, it was even from that point, like another five years or something before I started syndicating. Uh, at that point, I had a partner, a business partner. He and I got together. We did three deal by deals, just raising money. Not exactly friends and family. In fact, I guess none of them were. But uh, but but you know, we 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 met people online. We did a road show, um, and so we read that deal. Also, was just a, uh, sorry that deal was about eight hundred thousand. That first deal. Um, anyway, so we did three deal by deals, raising money from maybe in in aggregate something like fifteen people, and then so we you know building on our track record, we then raised our first fund, our second fund. Um, I'm now. Uh, out doing my own fund and my previous partners no longer in the business. And I've kept with the fund model. I've raised now two additional funds uh, on my own. That's the model I prefer. Uh, that way I have dry powder in the bank. I can actually close some properties for all cash quickly. Um, 
I also kind of know that <clears throat> that I've got the money in the bank, um, and I know whether I'm kind of looking for you know small, medium, or large deals. Um, anyway, so so that's how I've I've grown into it. It's been an evolution again from having a day job into doing a couple deals with just my own capital, establish my own track record, and then uh, raise, raising outside capital. So all cash is great. Uh, it's a great way to incentivize somebody to potentially sell you an asset. But in a highly desirable asset class, are there a particular set of pain points you typically see to get in the door? Because it seems like uh, the there's a lot of uh, demand for these spaces and, and mm -hmm. they're shrinking. Uh, how do you get in there and really uh, get your foot in the door to get deals done? You know, it, it varies. Uh, sometimes it's that we've got all cash. We might not be offering quite the price that a seller wants, but again, we're going to make an offer with no financing contingencies and we can close. It depends a little, frankly, more on, or at least as much on how fast the seller can get us diligence. Uh, but if they're pretty Johnny on the spot after we sign the contract and they just say like, yep, here's my P&Ls, here's my rent roll, here's some utility bills, here's a, a list of CapEx, uh, here's some photos of the mobile homes that I might you know, transfer with the park. If they're pretty Johnny on the spot, we can get a deal done in 30 days. I just need to get a phase one done. I just always make sure that there's no toxic waste. Um, but that's a lot quicker, for instance, than getting an appraisal done. It's a lot quicker than getting uh, bank uh, or CMBS debt lined up. Uh, I've got a guy who can do phase ones typically in two weeks, sometimes a little less. So anyway, uh, so we sometimes just that we can close quickly. Um, uh, other folks, you know, we need to have a longer conversation with and just kind of get to know them over time. And maybe it's not the right time right now, but there's, for instance, a health issue. A lot of these mom and pops are older. Uh, so if you've got a, a seller that, that are somewhere in their 60s, 70s, and they have a health concern, um, and frankly, a lot of what we're seeing is a lot of, you know, the mom and pop might be maybe the first or the second generation to have the park. But uh, we see a lot of the, the third generation, the kids want nothing to do with the mobile home park. It's not gonna go down another generation. Um, one of our better deals was from a second generation owner, but you know his kids had gone off and gotten real jobs like being a, a leading veterinarian, uh, that kind of thing. Anyway, so if there's that kind of uh, health issue and, again, not a subsequent generation to take over, um, that also is, is, is a good motivation for the mom and pop. They're not going to be desperate to sell, but, again, it is clear that the time this year, you know, could be next, but, you know, it is generally time to, to sell. So, you know, we have conversations with, with mom and pops and get to know them and uh, try and convince them that, that we're the ones for them to sell to. We're going to treat their tenants right. Uh, we're going to re repair the homes. We're going to take care of the clubhouse, the roads, whatever the infrastructure is. Uh, and again, treat, treat, those tenants, uh, treat those tenants well. Honestly, often we, we treat them better <clears throat> than the mom and pops have, simply, I think, by virtue of doing some of these repairs rather than, you know, 
just sort of letting it slide for another year that there are potholes there, you know, that kind of thing. We, we actually go in and invest a couple of bucks, uh, usually five to six figures um, in, in, in the parks to, uh, to physically improve them, trim the trees, fix the water, the sewer, et cetera. There, there's always something to, to be improving with, with even the best run park. So closing out the main section before we get to our final four, the last question I have to ask, and it's a question I think a lot of our uh, folks who are on the investor side are particularly interested in, is what happens with evictions? It's a little different than um, you know a traditional multifamily unit. Is that something that you think is particularly challenging in uh, manufactured homes, or is it a, an, a pretty ordinary process? Um, it's somewhere in between. Um... So if the tenant owns their own house and they're not paying the lot rent, and that's relatively rare, let's be clear, if the tenant has shown that they are financially stable enough to buy that mobile home, uh, they're, they're a step above your typical apartment renter. They've become a homeowner. Uh, so it is rare that those folks can't pay $400 in lot rent. It does happen. Uh, but yeah, then we go through an eviction process. Um, it's state by state. Sometimes there needs to be like an extra 30 days or something like that before the eviction goes through. Um, Frankly, what we do often, uh, you know, folks are having that kind of financial difficulty and it happens rarely, uh, and especially rarely with some of those nicer, newer homes. Uh, you know, th then if they owe us a couple thousand bucks, uh, that may be about what their house is worth. And, and, and we'll just say, look, move out, sign your house over to us. We'll, we'll then put in 5,000 bucks, could be 10 and fix it up. And we'll rent to own it and help someone else become a homeowner there. Um, so that's the way it works with those homes. If a tenant is uh, in one of the homes that we're renting to own, uh, then again, uh, we'll we'll process an eviction. Nobody likes doing that. Uh, <laughs> but that typically works more like an apartment eviction uh, where we are renting to own the house. We're still renting until they until and unless they go through with the purchase so in that case they haven't and they're renters and it's a more standard eviction we're sadly getting to the end of the podcast but we have our final four and it's just a quick little roundup at the end and we have to have you on in the future it's been great uh, i've learned a lot today about um, the manufactured home space affordable housing in general, and kind of a, a, a real great stopgap in terms of housing in America. And so going along with that, the first question of the final four, and one of my favorites, is always asking about where do you see the future going in terms of trends in the manufactured home space? Um, I think in the near term, with some people having gotten into it, say over the last two to three years with shorter term debt, uh, on parks that they may have overpaid for, I think we're going to see some distressed buying opportunities. Um, the underlying business remains good, uh, but indeed, I think there are a number of relative newbies into the space that you know thought that they could actually pay a four cap 
on a park uh, that doesn't have that much upside. Um, anyway, so I think in, in, in the next couple of years, we're going to see uh, some distressed selling. Uh, I remain, you know, very uh, sanguine, very bullish on, on this business. I think there will always be, uh, frankly, lower income folks in need of affordable housing. And the manufactured housing will continue to be there as a actual cheaper alternative to renting and again, one that actually delivers title to the property, to the mobile home into the hands of the occupants. People will become, continue to become owners. And I think that's a good thing. And again, as more folks such as ourselves get into the business, and by that, I mean, people with a a bank account that can can afford to invest, uh, we will see the supply of affordable housing increase. There will be more and more used, ab abandoned used homes in these parks uh, that get fixed up by some of some of us new owners. Um, and and again, we'll we'll keep buying brand new homes uh, out of the factory and infilling vacant pads with those. So I think it's going to continue to be a, a good and stable business. Um, certainly I think stability going forward is likely in the affordable housing world. Um, and you're definitely right. There are some folks that maybe shouldn't have bought, you know, three and four caps. Um, yeah. but if we're going to give, uh, young, uh, Jefferson, any advice, you know, if you could look back to high school, what would be the advice yeah. you would be giving? Um, I think my advice, I think I was sort of fine in in high school i would give give different advice to to the you know 29 year old jefferson coming out of business school all right, all right, all right. uh that's that that's where my career went off the rails and <laughs> i started going into high tech and uh continued to work for the man um there's certainly value in in working for others i did that all of my 20s and my 30s bought bought my first park i think when i was 39 um I generally have been on the right path. I would just encourage myself to do it faster, step on the gas, uh, get into the business sooner, raise outside capital sooner. Uh, I've been moving substantially in the right direction, just too slowly. I'm speeding up now, but uh, but you know that that would be it. I, I would probably not have worked at any of those high tech companies or. Uh, perhaps just the first one. And I, I would have gotten into this business uh, sooner. One of the whole focuses of the podcast is to try to educate ourselves and try to learn a little bit more. And we find that we would reach out to people from a wide spectrum um, of real estate or real estate adjacent professions. We get uh -huh. great book recommendations. And so I'm yep. curious if there's a book we should be reading um, for any of our listeners. Uh, if it's specific to the mobile home park business, um, I would probably read Sam Zell's Am I Being Too Subtle? Uh, it covers his whole life, and he has done way more than just mobile home parks. Uh, he's obviously done a lot of other real estate. That, I think, would, would be a very good book uh, just for understanding that man's career. You'll learn certainly some about the mobile home park business, but just in general, what motivated him and how he assesses risk. Uh, so for something mobile home park slash real estate specific, uh, I would say that book. Uh, I'm also a big fan of a book called Snowball, which is, uh, I think, the best written biography on Warren Buffett. 
Uh, Buffett indeed has bought Clayton Homes, which is the largest manufacturer of mobile homes in America. You won't learn much about the park business from that book, but you will learn about Buffett, how he assesses risk, how he does business, and frankly, some of what that has cost him personally. Uh, he perhaps was not the best dad or husband. Uh, he's an amazing businessman. That's where he focused. Um, anyway, but I think you get a particularly balanced look uh, at, at Buffett, at business, and at trade-offs uh, between work life and, and personal life. So I'd, I'd recommend Snowball as well. Well, those are some great recommendations, but we have one final recommendation that we need from you. And that's the whole point for the of the podcast. It's to reach out to people who are great voices and influencers and, and great investors or uh, professionals in the real estate world. Um, because you guys as a group tend to know who else we should be talking to. So who would be the person that you can recommend on the podcast to bring on next? Uh, I would try and probably get somebody out of equity lifestyle properties. That's Sam Zell's okay. company. And those are the big, the big dogs. They're the biggest owner of mobile home parks in America. Uh, and honestly, um, the name of the lady there who's CEO escapes me, but I would, I would try and get her or get somebody from ELS and just get their tie in with like how involved was Sam Zell in growing that business, how hands-on of a manager was Sam or hands-off, what was his general management philosophy, how did he uh, grow to be the, the biggest uh, owner of, of mobile home parks. Unfortunately, Sam's passed away recently, and you won't be able to get him on the podcast, but um, that would be my suggestion. Look, I think that's a fantastic recommendation, but we have one final question to ask you before you leave. And that's simply, what's the best way to get in contact with you? If somebody wants to reach out, they want to learn more about the manufactured home space, want to invest with you, where do they reach out? Yeah, I'd say one of two places. Uh, the first is simply our parkavenuepartners.com website. Park Avenue Partners, all spelled out. Uh, there's both, I think, an intake form at the bottom of that homepage. There is a join our mailing list button up at the top. Uh, we only send out uh, six or seven emails a year. I'm not really a spammer. Uh, you can unsubscribe at any point, <laughs> but I would do that. Join our mailing list. And again, you can reach me through there. Uh, and then you can also, for instance, uh, I have, that would be for folks that might be more interested in investing <clears throat> for folks that are considering getting in the business. I did start my own podcast, the industry's first podcast that's simply called mobile home park investors. And you can find that on iTunes, on Stitcher, all the Google play, all the usual, uh, places. And we have a corresponding website, simply mobile home park that links to the podcast. It also links to our LinkedIn group. I run the biggest such group on LinkedIn, almost 7,000 members. Um, you can connect to me on LinkedIn. Uh, so I would say that website as well, mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Jefferson, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. And we have to have you on in the future. Would love to do it. Thank you, Gordon. Thanks again to Jefferson. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a follow, and a review. Your interactions and subscriptions truly matter and help us provide quality guests. 
You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lanfear with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.